ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Finally, the New South Wales Parliament will soon debate gender ID laws, which would allow transgender people to officially change their gender on government documents. Many transgender people experience violence in public amenities, but there has been a string of cases, mainly overseas, where women in prisons, hospitals and hostels have suffered violence from transgender women. That's got some feminist groups concerned about possible law changes. Rachel Wong is Chief Executive of Women's Forum Australia and a law lecturer at Notre Dame University. At the outset, I will just clarify that I do like to use the term sex self-ID laws or just self-ID laws rather than gender self-ID laws. The reason for that is that while it's a subjective state of gender that individuals wish to have recognised on official documents like birth certificates, it's often the objective unchangeable state of sex that has actually been altered on those documents. So I will just clarify that sex self-ID laws have almost been rolled out across the entire country and those basically mean that anyone can change their legal sex on their birth certificate with little more required than a few pieces of paper and a fee. Those individuals are then entitled to be treated as that sex for all intents and purposes under the law. Previous laws required surgical interventions before a person's birth certificate could be altered but these self-ID laws have no such requirement. Queensland was the latest state to adopt such laws. I mean, you outlined some concerns about what happened in Queensland. What are they? So I have multiple concerns. Firstly, opposition to such laws by women's organisations like mine are grounded in the universal recognition of the importance of single-sex spaces and the risks that biological males can pose to women and girls. Self-ID laws effectively allow any man to self-identify as a woman and access female-only spaces, activities and services. They undermine the very purpose of single-sex spaces, which acknowledge the biological sex differences between men and women and exist to protect women's and girls' dignity, safety, fairness, quality and so on. Mm. Yeah, I think though, Rachel, the argument is that how often do these violations occur? I mean, the reality is the vast majority of perpetrators of sexual violence are men and the vast majority of victims are women. The pattern of male violence has not changed just because somebody is transgender. Whether it's one or two or three cases of sexual assault by a transgender male in what should be a woman-only space like a prison or a hospital ward or a refuge, even one of those situations is too much. And laws like this, self-ID laws, self-ID policies, are allowing situations like that to occur. New South Wales is now flagging that it is the next state that could introduce these um, ID laws. What caution would you advise then? I would advise the New South Wales politicians who will likely be presented with independent Alex Greenwich's self-ID bill within the next month to look at the well-documented evidence of harm caused by self-ID laws and policies, both across Australia and internationally. The kinds of harms arising from self-ID laws range from the sort of very severe kinds of harm, like rape and sexual assault, which we've seen in places like the UK, like the US, like Canada. We've seen women being raped by transgender males in women-only hospital wards, in women-only prisons, in uh, women-only refuges. There are instances of transgender males sexually assaulting women in all these different spaces which are meant to be 
women only. And there's also another situation in a different Victorian prison where there is currently a biological male sex offender being housed in that prison. While he hasn't assaulted those women, my understanding is he hasn't been fully integrated yet, but the intention is that he will be. Those women are terrified. And these are women who come from backgrounds of sexual assault, sexual abuse, all other kinds of violence and trauma. To have a male in their prison is just incredibly disturbing for them. But even the women who haven't necessarily been sexually assaulted, many of them in these situations, especially in prison situations, do fear that they will be sexually assaulted. And women are actually starting to exclude themselves from public spaces because of situations like this. And women start to hear about stories like this. It does have this chilling effect on women as well. And wasn't there a case in Scotland... Yes, last year Scotland had actually proposed its own version of self-ID laws. The UN Special Rapporteur for Violence Against Women and Girls, she actually wrote to the UK government and said that she was very concerned about the impact of those laws on women and girls. Then that in conjunction with this case of Isla Bryson and cases of other male offenders who were found to already be being housed in women-only prisons due to self-ID policies, then caused the UK government to actually exercise its never-before-used veto powers to block that law. And the fallout of that, the sort of the failure of the self-ID law in conjunction with the absolute controversy around the fact that these male sex offenders were being housed in women's prisons did help to lead to the uh, downfall of Nicola Sturgeon. How do we, though, deal with the reality that a transgender woman is likely to be at severe risk if the transgender woman is jailed in a men's prison? Yes, I think that's a really important consideration, and I think it's vital that the safety of all prisoners is protected, of course. Our prison systems already have segregation based on security and risk, and I think that creating a space for trans prisoners in prison that corresponds with their biological sex could be facilitated by sectioning off wards like is already done for other vulnerable inmates. And just finally, Rachel, I mean, in a recent piece, you did say that we have to be very aware that people do experience gender dysphoria. How do we deal, though, with the numerous studies that show very high levels of depression, self-harm among people experiencing dysphoria? I think we always need to, you know, obviously show compassion and respect to those people. And we need to ensure that we are using the best, most up-to-date medical-based evidence to treat those with gender dysphoria so that we are producing the best outcomes for them. I know that due to concerns about the harmful effects of puberty blockers, hormones, surgery, and concerns that the underlying health issues of these people aren't being properly addressed, countries like Norway, Finland, Sweden, and the UK are actually starting to move away from the prevailing gender affirmation model to a more holistic approach that seeks to address the underlying health issues that are often associated with gender dysphoria. So I think it's really important that we do that and that these people are able to access the best medical care and support and that our laws support them to do this. Rachel Wong from Women's Forum Australia. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.